Welcome to another episode of Adoption, The Making of Me. I'm Louise Brown. And I'm Sarah Reinhardt. Make sure to find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as Adoption, The Making of Me podcast. Also, we have a Patreon page if you want to support us as we continue telling these important stories. You can find that at patreon.com and search adoption colon the making of me. Again, that's patreon.com search adoption colon the making of me. And please remember to subscribe, share and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Chapter 12 reunions as a means of healing the adoption triad. I'm just going to start off by saying I really wish once again that I'd read this book years ago because when I went into reunion, you know, I had no idea about this. And I I don't even know. I definitely talked in depth with my mom, adopted mom, about the search. I don't even know if, did I tell my dad? No, I had, this is a very interesting chapter because we're talking to so many guests about their reunions Mm -hmm. and hearing about it on Facebook Live and different places we hear from people. And I really was like, no, I mean, I didn't meet my biological mom, but when I met my biological relatives, I really had none of this information to go with. I just kind of took off on the plane and went and drove in a car and had all sorts of weird experiences, didn't know how to process anything. Really, this is an amazing chapter and it gave me a lot of insight into everybody's feelings on it too. And I like how she starts off the chapter that the healing process, society can help with the healing process by doing this, helping to initiate these reunions. But also what I really underlined was their individual, talking about the birth mother Mm -hmm. and child, their individual yearning to reestablish their relationship may be what keeps them both in a state of limbo Mm -hmm. for so many years. I underline that too. I mean, it's like, they're both living in a limbo with not knowing what's happened to the other and what the feelings are. And I just thought, well, I like the part you just talked about with the society because she said it's people feel they have to take sides like divorce. Uh-huh. That's how she explained it. That kind of was a ding, ding, ding for me because I went through a divorce and there are people who feel they need to jump on a side or be a friend to one and not the other. And we're in this camp or this camp. And it, I felt that when I was going through this, well, you're with us or against us, you know, a whole thing. And, she says it's, the health, a, it's a guilt. It's a guilt that, health, ado- that I think mo- mainly that comes from the adoptive yeah. parents well, who feel. Well, and even the, in the birth mother, because she gets so into the birth mother here, they get into the birth mother's guilt and shame with her, their families, mm-hmm. because maybe their families did know about it, but are ashamed and embarrassed by that. So God forbid she brings it up again, that thing she did that She's blamed for the sex and the horrible. Right. The set that's yeah, that, that's I underline that comment too about her making she had sex. She had sex and got caught. Yeah, she um, had sex and got caught. God forbid there's like double party. I, I do like that it's emphasized that whatever helps the adoptee is the most important thing, right? Because yeah. we've heard this in several different paraphrased in several different ways about you know, adoption. The adoptees are the only trauma victims who are expected to be grateful, you know, that we hear that over and over. And and so in this case, if if this is going to heal the adoptee, that should be the most important. It really should. She that you're so right. And she has that line that says, in addition to alleviating the need to repeat the pattern of the birth mother, finding her for an adoptee may also relieve anxieties felt by adoptees who doubt the permanency of their relationship to their adoptive parents, reunions have a calming effect and can actually help all parties in the triad, mm-hmm. which I think is fascinating because it actually helps everybody. We've had a couple of guests that you and I have interviewed that everybody hasn't met yet that it, it did kind of go, Oh, this is okay. Everyone's a little bit more open and kinder for it. And yeah. In society, we need to have a new conversation. I think that's what you and I are trying to do through this podcast is have conversations of openness and it's okay to tell our stories and it's okay to find people. And what else struck you? I mean, the well, whole here's, chapter was there was just kind of along the same thought. I underline this. Everyone should keep in mind that no matter what the circumstances of the relinquishment, no one has been more manipulated than the child. He is the only one who has had absolutely no control over their life. 
Look, it's so funny because you were about to go to that. And I was like looking right at that. Yes. <laughs> we're always on the same page. I'm like, it's exactly there. The, the, I mean, just say that again, the relinquishment part. I mean, to me, that's like manipulated. They've been manipulated. Manipulated. It's so funny. I never thought of it. I never, until we started doing this podcast and kind of coming out of the fog and yeah. going through all this stuff, I never thought of that word. Like we were relinquished. I, I mean, that's it's the first time duty. the last few weeks. Yes. That's heavy duty. Like we were, and then one of our guests at one point had said, which it'll come up that they were a good baby that the birth mother said, I guess they were with them for a few days or five days, whatever it was. And the birth mother said, you were fine. And the only time you cried was when I handed you over to your adoptive parents. That's, I, you know, proof in the pudding as it were. Yeah. You're a good baby until... <laughs> I, I like how she broke down to the bad guy. Everyone you know, playing their bad guy roles. Yeah. The bad guy syndrome. The adoptee is the bad guy. I felt the bad guy before. I have felt that. That's That was actually, you're right about that. Like you're seen as unstable, pathological, not grateful. If you would like to search or if you have this need, not always. I mean, we've met many people who have not had that message. And I wasn't really directly given that message. Just like this weird inherent thing. Like it just was kind of shut down. It was just kind of shut down. Yeah. So, and you. And if I told others, I, there's another part in here that you'll probably get to too. So if you tell others in your family or out there, they are almost worse sort of than your adoptive parents sometimes because they're like, well, why would you want to do that? You're the, you know, they're defensive for your family. And it's like, oh, okay, I'm a bad guy. Like, oh, I can't think like that. I had this weird Big thing. Bad. My my mom was very supportive of my finding my biological mom, Tilda. But there was this weird thing that I felt like I couldn't tell her that I was close to her or that I really enjoyed spending yes. time with, with with my sisters and her and you know, and that that I had a different kind of closeness. And I always felt like I needed to minimize it or yes. maybe say things that weren't that nice or, you know. I made it very, I made with my biological relatives when I was excited about her, finding a connection, I made it very casual. Oh, you know, they're, it's just casual. I blew it off as a, and I think that's very odd because it's like, we're, it's like you're cheating on someone. Right. Telling it's a friend not, you don't like the other friend. Like there's a weird feeling. You shouldn't feel that way. Yeah. It's not, it's not cool that we should have to feel that way. <laughs> it's um, not cool, Sarah. <laughs> it's not cool. Um, I like they, she gets into all, I mean, this is actually a very long chapter and she gets into the, the birth mother is the bad guy. Mm -hmm. I like that too. Understanding the birth mother. This is, this is interesting to me. The trauma, we talk a lot about us as adoptees and I'd like to get into what the adopted parents feel as well, but here understanding the birth mother, I think we're just starting to really scratch the surface of getting that. And she says the pain and dilemma for the birth mother should not be overlooked as we view the trauma from the point of view of the adoptee. Very often, the choice of relinquishment is forced upon her. Mm -hmm. One hears birth mothers using terms as surrender. You can almost picture someone with a gun being pointed to their head. Yeah. But that's Because not everybody was forced to, but you still, I think even in the hospital, like I think about what Linda went through, you know, she chose to give me up. I think there was a lot of pressure on that too. Well, why are you doing that? You know, there's the bad guy. You're the bad guy. You know what? You don't want to take care of your own baby. I mean. She was a kid and didn't have the means and didn't have the ability. And she knew she didn't. So it's like, I think she got painted that way too, in mm -hmm. a different way. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, you're just, so people slink off in shame for many years. And it's like, gosh, I can't imagine going through all that, having a baby and then feeling that way after. I know. It's crazy. And then what about, I kind of want to skip a little bit because it gets really into like. It does. Yeah. The reunion process, which I think is kind of playing out live on our show. <laughs> it sure is. Coming up. But I think what she gets to at the end of the chapter, there was something that I wrote down. Hold on. Well, and I like the adoptee being caught in the middle between the, yes. the, the birth mother's feelings and the adoptive parents' feelings. And then, you know, like we just were talking, we were just saying that basically. Yes. And here's the part you were talking about society at the beginning. She talks about, we can't expect from others. I thought this was interesting. We can't expect from others as outside society people. So we can't expect from others 
that which we have not been able to do ourselves. We've all heard the old adage, physician, heal thyself. Perhaps mm-hmm. we had meant to it to fit it, our own circumstances. Triad, heal thyself. Yes. So, until we do the work is what we're trying to do. Just even getting these stories out there until we all do the work. Adopted parents, biological birth mothers, you, you and I as adoptees, until we all do the work. How can society understand it? They just have their own narrative of what this is. Here's a, an important thing that I want to highlight. And mm-hmm. we've been, this has come up, this came up on that big interview the other night. And <laughs> birth mothers must understand that it is, it is the institution of adoption, which needs to be, be reformed. It may not be fair to blame the unconscionable acts performed by adoption agencies or attorneys upon the perspective of adoptive parents, right? So like it's really put the blame where it belongs, the for-profit birth industry. And here at the very end, it says socioeconomic status is often the number one criterion for selecting these parents, not their understanding of the issues or their psychological, emotional readiness for taking on responsibility. This is such a thing that needs to be reformed. And perhaps it has in some ways like, I guess, you know, New York State opened up its records yeah. only in the last year, which is I have a feeling that ancestry and all that had to do with that. Yes. People are getting them in other ways, thinking, you can't do this to us anymore. Yeah. I reference network. I'm sick of it. I'm not going to take it anymore or whatever that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm mad as hell. Mad as hell. There you go. Sorry, Patty to- Chayefsky. Yeah. <laughs> I love that movie. <laughs> That's oh so funny. my gosh. And here yeah. again, if we expect people outside the adoption triad to comprehend the complexity of the op- adoption uh, process, to empathize with the need for more honesty and openness in adoption laws, to try to understand the paradoxical feelings and emotions which permeate the adoption experience mm-hmm. and how painful those experiences have been for all three sides of the triad. The, yeah, you just said that. Yeah. Well, no, I think... We have to understand it. Like, I'm just understanding it, right? And so, and she tries to get into how birth mothers could be taught to talk about it when they're doing this. Some people are going to have to give up their babies. This is life. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why. So, I think that this is actually the part where they counsel the birth mother, how you can feel going forward. You don't need to feel shame. These are resources for you. If you do want to reconnect with your child. You can do it this way. It can be healing because they just hide or they're scared or they put something out there. But when it happens, it's terrifying. I was abandoned by my my usual little companion in the closet. Yeah. <laughs> we both had dogs. Dogs. Let's talk dogs for a minute. I have, <laughs> I'm now in a new closet for Airbnb in our other closet. And my puppy is now with me and I have to put on mute and feed snacks throughout. <laughs> <laughs> One day, Sarah and I are going to have them on the podcast with yes. you know, the headphones. So. Yes, they're both <laughs> adorable. Well, well, that was I, a great chapter. We've it was. Another. One yeah. quote from this. This is what I just loved at the, her ending. She always ends the chapter so great. Love is not a quantitative commodity mm-hmm. to be rationed out or hoarded. It is possible for the triad to become an extended family with the best interest of the adoptee as the motive for our learning to accept and love one another. I like that. I do too. I just thought that was neat how she said it. And she did it in her own life, Nancy. Nancy. Yes. We love Nancy. Kudos to Nancy today. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, well on to our guest. guest. Yes. yes. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Louise and I had talked about it for months and we were intimidated until we heard about Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout is hands down the best way to launch promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories like Apple, Spotify, Google, and more. Podcasting isn't hard. Believe me, if Louise and I could figure it out, anyone can. We got a mic, some headphones, parked ourselves in our closets, and that was it. Buzzsprout did the rest. You get a great looking podcast website and you can track all of your analytics to see how your podcast is doing. So if you follow the link in our show notes, it lets Buzzsprout know we sent you and you get a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan. And bonus, you help support our show. So before we get started on our episode today, we just want to give a shout out to our Patreons. We are so grateful to you guys for supporting us and giving us all the love. And here they are. We have seven, Sarah. We have Laura Christensen, good friend of Sarah's. Thanks, Laura. 
a special friend to the show that I'm not allowed to mention who we just adore. <laughs> Linda Pivak. Thank you, Linda. Blonde Records. I wonder who Blonde Records is. We need to investigate that. Yes. Ramona Evans, my dear friend growing up. Ron Schneider, friend of Sarah and I both. And John Fry. He's our past guest and friend of the show. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thank you. So good morning, everybody. And we're here for another amazing episode. And today we have a friend of a friend of mine that was referred to us. He's telling a story from California, I believe. And I will just introduce David Daniels and let him tell his story. Welcome. Thank you. Hello. Hello, Louise Hello. and Sarah. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to be here. And uh, so happy to have you. Just great to be able to share stories with you and hear your stories and everybody's story. I mean, I think I've just learned so much, you know, about my own journey through the narratives of other people. And, you know, it's just a constant evolution, you know, in, in understanding my own story. But yeah, so my story in terms of being an adoptee, I was relinquished at birth. I was born in Manhattan. In New York. The reason I was in Manhattan is my my biological parents were very young. They met in college in West Virginia, which is where they were both from and are, you know, their, their origins. So they're from West Virginia. In college, my biological father was 19 years old. My biological mother was 20 at the time when they met. You know, they dated briefly and ended up going home to visit her parents one weekend and had some fun. And there you have it. You know, I was conceived. Their relationship didn't last very long. But what happened was in the summer after the sort of year, year of school that they were dating in, she found out she was pregnant and went to his house where he was living he was an only child and he was there with his mother, my, my <laughs> paternal grandmother, and she shows up and announces that she's pregnant. And of course, this is all happening right in front of him. And, you know, his mother is in earshot. This is 1960. This is West Virginia. <laughs> These are devoutly Christian people. And you can imagine his reaction, which was completely blown away and, and really wasn't willing to own it in that moment, right? And so he kind of didn't want to embrace it. She kind of turned around, went out the door, and literally was never to be seen or heard from again by him. Wow. Mm. So what does she do at 20 years old? And she's pregnant. And again, she's also from a, a devoutly Christian family. And this is 1960. She decides to go off to New York, to Manhattan, because she had done some modeling there as a young woman and felt connected in some way to that community and also felt that this was a place she could get lost because her, her parents are at that time in the Midwest. They're, it's far enough away. Nobody would know. So she gets on a train and she, she, goes, to, she goes to Manhattan. I mean, this is brave, really. Yeah, very brave. And she's all alone. She is telling nobody. You know, I later learned from her. She even had her best friend at the time had had a child out of wedlock the year before and kept the child. And she didn't even confide in her. Right. So wow. she was just really going to just carry this burden completely by herself. The story is, you know, she was uh, while she was on the train to New York, she had morning sickness. There were apparently a couple nuns on the train who kind of saw her and sort of embraced her and kind of had a sense of what might be going on. They helped her and got her to New York, connected her with the both the adoption agency through which I was adopted, but also helped her find housing. And she ended up living in a hotel for retired actresses. So she had all these old ladies <laughs> around her kind of encircling her. And a bunch I of Gloria she, Swanson's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And she, you know, she, I learned she, she Gloria played Swanson. the piano every day. She was a pianist in, in the solarium there while I was in the oven, so to speak, and carried me to term and then relinquished me. And I was adopted nine days after, or I was handed over nine, about nine days after I, I was born. And were you with her those nine days or do you not know? I believe I was for some of the time because when I later met her, 
she said, you know, you were such a, a good baby. You were very quiet. The only time you cried was when I handed you over. Mm. And, mm. Um, and that was sort of a, oof, a kind of wow. aha, aha moment that, you know, where we, you know, you talk a lot about in, in this podcast about that sort of relinquishment moment, that moment of separation, that extraordinary trauma she really, she kind of, she told the story of that to me later when we met. So I did spend a little bit of time with her. And then I was relinquished into the hands of, you know, Mark and Emily Daniels, my parents who raised, who, who adopted me and raised me from birth. I have two older sisters who were both adopted as well. My mother was not able to have children. And this was an extraordinary family to be adopted into. Uh, they, my father was a very successful director, primarily in television and, and, and in, also in the theater. And, and my mom had had a, a successful career also in the television industry. And they were living in New York at the time, but had had uh, extensive lives also in Los Angeles. My father was the original director on I Love Lucy. My mother was the camera coordinator on I Love Lucy. Mm -hmm. I mean, they had a very, really interesting life. They were, you know, they were intellectuals. They were highly educated. They were very liberal, very open-minded. My father was Jewish. My mom was Unitarian. You know, <laughs> these you know, Unitarians are sort of like kind of everything goes kind yeah. of when it comes to faith, right? <laughs> So, yeah, so I was adopted into the hands of these folks who certainly were, you know, were not devout Southern Baptist Christians from West Virginia, right? Wow. And so, like, what a... I mean, if you of, couldn't have gone to a more different, you know, <laughs> the, outside right? of, like, some other country, you know, I mean, really. Right. So this just cultural sort of instantaneous sort of transition, in a sense, <laughs> you know, obviously I was very, very, very little... But, you know, and hadn't experienced the culture of West Virginia. But I even think about that, you know, just kind of on the faith, on the faith level, you know, because I, you know, I am a Christian. Mm -hmm. And the way Louise and I made contact is through a friend that I met through catechism and yeah. in my church, right? My parents who adopted me did not wear crosses around their neck, did not read the Bible to me. They were principled people with, extreme, you know, very centered values. But we were not going into churches with lots of, crosses and crucifixes hanging all over the place, right? And so I was adopted into this family. And, and within six months of being adopted in Manhattan, we moved to Los Angeles permanently. And that's where my father's career really was centered. He directed, he was the main director or one of uh, the, one of two main directors on Star Trek, you know, the original series. He directed Hogan's Heroes. He directed Gunsmoke, a lot of the, you know, the series we all grew up with. And really his entire career centered, you know, in the studios and in television, primarily here in Los Angeles. So from conception to, to Manhattan to Los Angeles, you know, <laughs> lots of roads and paths. To I like how you started with, um, with your birth mother's story. It's nice yeah. to hear like her journey to have yeah. you. It's interesting. I like that. Yeah. Did you, as a child, did you feel, I'm assuming your parents told you, early on you were adopted and did you feel any sense of longing for your birth family or birth mother? You know, it's kind of something that I think lived very deeply inside me, but wasn't necessarily on the surface when I was, when I was little, I'm 60 now and the work of kind of understanding me continues. Right. But I am sort of getting really more in touch now with those feelings of missing her and missing something and never feeling quite connected. And certainly, you know, my father was a very intelligent man. He was a very generous director on the set. Actors who worked with him loved to work with him. But he was a very volatile person as well and had a lot of his own sort of anger management issues. So, you know, there were things that I grew up with where I didn't feel entirely safe in my environment mm -hmm. and particularly around him. And I think that that sense of aloneness, feeling alone in this environment, I do remember that. And mm -hmm. I do remember feeling that way and feeling kind of that sense of longing for some something really familiar that could come into the room and comfort me, you know? Mm, yeah. And, Boy, that's and, a good way of putting it. I felt sure the same. Is. Yeah. Yeah. Like, 
where is she? Where is that comfort? Where is that? Just come hold my hand, be with me, just just stand with me. My adoptive mother, you know, Emily Daniels, I mean, she just loved being a mom, you know, and did everything in her power to support my experiences, my education. You know, I, I started studying the violin at age four and studied all the way through the conservatory in college and was going to do it professionally. So they were really promoting my my sort of musical sort of interests, which, as I mentioned, my mom, was yeah. a, my biological mother was a pianist and played in the solarium while I was in utero, right? So, you know, that musical sort of sensibility was was in me. And, and my, my adoptive mom, Emily, picked up on that from very early on. And they they promoted that, you know, fortunately, I was in a family that was culturally astute and mm-hmm. wanted wanted me to to sort of excel in that way. And, and my mom in particular was just, you know, anything she saw in me, okay, we're going to promote that. You like this, we're going to promote that. You, you, know, <laughs> you, you like to travel, you're, we're going to promote that, you know, and so, so Hollywood, <laughs> right, like, right, how lucky am I, right? So in that sense, but even lucky, that, lucky in both ways, because you also got it by your birthright. Yeah. I mean, you're musically inclined from that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think those sort of connections to self where, as I've learned more about my my roots and sort of my biological history, yeah, kind of seeing where, where those those sort of attributes come from and then having the fortune to have folks who adopted me that had the means and also this sort of awareness to, to say, let's, let's touch that. Let's push that. Let's, you know, let's embrace that if that's sort of going on. You know, I think you've talked a lot about with so many of your guests about that sort of idea of mirroring and the loss of mirroring that occurs mm. when we're growing up in, in a home that's not exactly, you know, from our DNA, from our absolute roots. And to some degree, kind of moving forward in time, I met my biological father, you know, I'll I'll talk a little bit more about that recently and found him through Ancestry. And in the first meal we had together, he's sitting to my right, his wife is sitting to my left, and we both pick up our forks in our left hand. Yeah. Right. And in that moment, his wife sort of shrieks like, oh, my God, you're both left handed, right? (laughs) And, And he sort of just chuckles and is like, well, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, right? Well, I didn't grow up around a bunch of left-handed people. Everybody was right-handed, you know, and they were all looking at me like, what's, what's, what's wrong with you? <laughs> or, where does that come from, right? I'm a lefty too. <laughs> right? Yeah. My adoptive family did the best they could, you know. They weren't taking the, the fork out of my left hand and trying to make me right-handed, you know, but they were also pointing out like, you're left-handed. That's where is, what's going on with that, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. And were your sisters, your sisters were aware, obviously they were adopted too. Yeah. And, and they were older than you or how much older were they? So I have a sister that's eight years older than I mm-hmm. am and a sister who's three years older than I am. And the oldest sister was adopted actually when she was three years old. So she mm-hmm. was old. She was not an infant. The sister that's uh, three years older than me was adopted at birth as well. And we all knew we were adopted from day one. We were sort of told these stories and read these stories about the sort of wonders and beauty of, of adoption and kind of through a, through a lens the, the lens of our parents weren't, you know, our biological mothers were not for whatever reasons able to sort of take care of us, but, but wanted us to have the best and wanted us to have oh, complete nice. lives. And, you know, so it was always framed in a very positive light by our adopted parents. And I think we collectively and, and individually felt very special as adoptees in a lot of ways. We would sort of tell people like, oh, we're, we're adopted. You know, we're adopted. Were the three of you close? Pretty close. Yeah. I mean, in different ways, I would say, you know, but yes, we were, you know, because we did a lot together as a family. You know, my parents being in the entertainment industry entertained a lot. And so, and we were always part of that sort of dynamic. So I think we sort of felt included in this team, you know, of, of serving, serving the cocktails a la Sally. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, we were never excluded from the, the dining table and sent to the kids table. We were always at the table with all of these actors and stars, like that. people that, you know, you, you'd see on TV all the time. And, and I think we kind of 
we bonded in, in that way. And my, and my, our, and our mother was really central in our lives and just kept us sort of really joined with each other. And we share similar vocabulary, you know, we share similar gestures, we pick up on that, right? And, right. and we so so people when they see us, they're, they're like, Oh, I didn't, I would have never guessed you're a doc, you know, you're all unrelated, right? You all kind of look somewhat alike. And you, you know, so we kind of, yeah, we absorbed quite a bit of that in just being around our parents. And they were very, you know, they were because of that entertainment sort of dynamic, they were very outward facing people and they were very vocal and told stories and were kind of a little bit bigger than your average person, you know, in some ways in terms of their behavior. And I think that had an influence, right? And so... Were they supportive when you wanted to find your biological side? Or how did that come about? So when I decided to find my really do the finding, they they were supportive. My, you know, my father at that time was no longer alive, but as we mm-hmm. were growing up, they both support, we knew they were supportive of the idea. If we ever wanted to find our biological parents, that was okay. And, and they were good with that. And they understood that that That's would nice. come from a natural curiosity. So we, I never felt like that for me, it certainly was off limits, but I think emotionally you still feel I still felt torn in terms of loyalties and in terms of yeah. you know how would this really play out and and I think one thing you know as an adoptee that I think is common and I'll certainly share from my own perspective I lived in fantasy a lot right mm. and we are in some ways we're kind of fantasy addicts you know we we because there's so much we don't know we're we're kind of put in this position of having to fill the gaps with with story, with whatever narrative, you know, a three-year-old or a five-year-old or an eight-year-old wants to, yeah. to invent, right? And I think, yeah, and, and you know, I mean, people, I remember growing up, people, some, there was a time when people would say, you know, you look a little bit like JFK Jr. Did you know that? And I'd be, think, <laughs> I'd be thinking to myself, okay, so wait, where did John F. Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe have that? <laughs> right? And I'm like, do I look like Marilyn? Wait, a little, you know. Right, so we're like living right. Yes. So those are the fantasies. I remember doing these things too. Right. Actually, yeah. you're like, oh, I'm, I'm definitely royalty or whatever you're. Yeah. Thinking. Oh yeah, I thought I was an aster. Oh yeah, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, so I think part of part of that that maybe resistance to searching is like, oh wow, I'm going to have to let go of some of this fantasy stuff and kind of get real here, right? Yeah. But it came about when I, I, I was married in my late 20s, and I have two children who are with, my, with their mother, my, my ex-wife. And when my second child, my son, my son, was about two years old, and my oldest child was about four or five, it, it just, I just began to feel much more interested in these generations that are being created here. And also, even from a medical perspective, what's going on with my, with my biology and their biology and what's going on in our bodies and what will, what will come, you know, and what, how is this all related? So I, I really started that search in earnest at that point. And this was about 24 years ago, 20, yeah, something like that. And I wrote to this, to the adoption agency in the state of New York, because at that time I was entitled to non-identifying information and I asked for that non-identifying information, and they sent me a letter back, which had a lot of clues in it, including, you know, generally my biological parents were from somewhere in the Midwest. They had been in college. My biological father was six foot six. He was an only child. My mother had an older brother. The most sort of telling fact in there was, and my maternal grandfather owned and operated his own photography studio. She put Uh, hints in there. Right, exactly. And so, and I actually knew my name at at birth from the court documents. And so, and my name was Michael Allen Taggart at birth. And how did you get the court documents? My parents had the papers for the adoption and it had my name in in that. Didn't have any information about her or any of that, but but from that, I, I knew pretty unusual. it is pretty unusual. And I, from those documents, I knew 
I also knew from from the non-identifying information that they never got married, so that likely this name was her her name, her surname. You know, the fact that they're from the Midwest. Now I'm looking for I'm looking for somebody with this same last name. I'm looking for somebody who owned, you know, right. now, who owned and operated his own photography studio. You can just start to narrow it, right? And yeah. really in a very short period of time, I I was able to find her. It was not within 20 minutes of 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 speaking to her brother, my uncle, who gave me her phone number. I did not disclose to him exactly who I was, but he was he was sort of a delightful Midwesterner who was very trusting and was like, "Oh, well, if we're relatives, <laughs> give her a call, right? You know, why not? And you know, and he gave me her phone number, and I was like, I just took a deep breath. I was hyperventilating really in the moment, but I decided I'm just going to call, and so I did. And she was living in Florida at the time. I was completely caught off guard, but immediately acknowledged, you know, who she was because I said, you know, I I think you're my biological mother, and here here's all the facts, you know, and she, she's was very concerned about how I found her because she had never told anybody. Mm. And she was very appreciative of the fact that I I protected her identity by not telling anybody who I actually am in my search for her. And she agreed to meet with me and did want to meet with me and acknowledge that she had left a trail in those facts at the adoption agency to get me to her, right? Mm. So that So that there was this part of her that even though she wasn't telling anybody, she did want this reunion somewhere in her in her heart. So I we did meet, I did fly to Florida and we did spend a few days together in which she gave me pictures of the family and we had conversations. And she was very in a very bad way at that point, I think emotionally for a number of reasons. She had she my one of my half sisters, her youngest daughter had been killed in a in a car accident about 18 mm-hmm. months before that. So she was reeling from that. She was also willing to do this. She had the courage, you know, to to do it. Did you feel a connection with her? Did you feel? Mm, I would say it took me. It took me time with my birth mother. You know, I talked about that that I was so defensive and so. I don't think it is automatic that we feel something. Yeah, I felt an emotional wall up. Yeah, so I felt like I wanted something, and and it wasn't really happening. There was a lot of interference there or blockage, you know, and I did ask her at one point, very oddly, we spent a day at Disney World, which was, you know, she actually worked for that company, but which was a very odd place to spend with your mother, you know, at, at, you know, I'm an adult, but I'm in like playland for kids and families. (laughs) And I remember being in this area where we had just gotten a hamburger and I, and we were just having this quiet conversation. And I said, I'm just sensing that your hand is kind of up. And I asked, I said, is, are you worried about your ability to integrate me in some way? What, what is that about? And she said, yeah, I am. I'm very worried that nobody knows. And I'm not sure I can pull you into this sort of dynamic in any way. I'm not sure I'm prepared to do that. And so she's, she's sort of like keeping her distance a bit. That was part of it. I'm sure there were many other reasons that were. So much trauma that these young mothers go through and have yeah. to then go through their lives like this. And yeah. Yeah. And then it's a secret and then you're, it's a, it's a lot, I'm sure. I think so. And I, yeah, I kept, I think, I don't know if you had this experience where you kind of want to sort of in some way celebrate whatever aspects of yourself you feel proud of. Like, you know, I, whatever that is, you know, I'm, and I kind of wanted to say, you know, okay, I'm, I made it to adulthood and I'm here you know, I want to just sort of celebrate my presence here and also celebrate what you did to to get me to this point. You know, you were part of that. And that sort of that idea of celebration kind of wasn't really happening there. Yeah. You know, it was just we did spend that time and, and she she did sort of, as I said, provide kind of a, a pictorial narrative of, of some of the people that are on her side of the family and told me more about that. But I think that she was not able to really embrace at that moment, at that time, you know, any sense of integration or telling people within her circle about me. And she also wasn't willing to share who my biological father is. Mm. And she did blurt out his a name when I first had that phone call with her, but it turned out that was not his name. 
I checked pretty immediately after we had that phone call with the registrar at the university that she said they attended. And there was a record that she had been there, but nobody by the name that she gave me for my father matched. There was no record of that. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I didn't ever get that information. And and that was sort of something that was very frustrating because it it ultimately led me to, to really pushing her pretty, pretty soon after that to, you know, if you can't give me that information, I might reach out to somebody in your family who might remember who my father was because he was six foot six and you were dating while you were in college and somebody might know. And I realized kind of in retrospect, you know, if I had had the patience and sort of was willing to maybe walk through a lot of these layers with her rather than just push the immediate button, you know, give me the information and I need to know. And it's my right to know and who's my father and don't hold that from me. And, you know, God damn it, what's going on? Right. So I, you know, the little child that we all carry inside of us, particularly, you know, the injured child, the traumatized child from being relinquished. I didn't really know anything about that other than that child was taken over in that moment. (laughs) And I was like, give me that goddamn information or I'm going to out you, you know? (laughs) And right. So that didn't go too well. So ultimately we didn't really formulate a a long-term relationship and kind of I moved on, but more recently. So she never did tell well, I, I later learned that because she passed away in 2013. I later learned because I've now met one of my half sisters that uh-huh. I that I found through Ancestry, but I knew about because she shared information about them. I did learn that she shared this information with them. She got brave with, and told them about yeah, it. Yeah, at least with the, my oldest sister, who then revealed that to the younger sister. Uh, the oldest sisters, they're, they're both younger than me, but the older one, but I think revealed that to the younger one. And also she told her brother, because I did make contact recently with him and he did know about me at this point. Right. But it, when I met her, they, they didn't, she hadn't revealed that. I think what, as she was, you know, exiting this planet, you know, in the physical sense, you know, I think she probably in some ways wanted to let folks know, because it could it could that information certainly in that story could could uh, be revealed later, right? And so, yeah. But I more recently through through ancestry, my partner um, got me ancestry. And Louise, I know, I believe you you yeah. you were given ancestry.com as a Christmas present as well. The so same, thing. I. same thing. <laughs> I was given ancestry.com by my partner. You know, he gave, he got it for me and I opened that box and I spit into that tube this last year (laughs) on December 23rd. And five weeks later, my DNA went live on Ancestry. And sure enough, within 10 days, you know, I was able to find my biological father who's alive Wow! and has a wife, a lovely wife and has two kids who are my half brother and half sister. And I've met them now and uh, wow and, and, and they're they're embracing of you and they're happy embracing to have you. me they're embracing me and how was he with it because did he tell you the story about her showing up and he did knocking on the door and yeah so well, we have I mean, grown sons so i mean i can picture this happening it would be you know they're young i mean just the, <laughs> i can right. see the reaction yeah yeah i think for him it was first shock because, you know, he didn't even know I existed. And I think, you know, because I think in his mind, he also believed it was possible. I wasn't, it wasn't his child. That was a possibility too. Like I was only whatever, two months in utero at that point when she shows up and they weren't like dating so seriously that it would have been impossible that she was perhaps with somebody else. Right. And so I think there were a lot of reasons in his head. For, for maybe not con- completely connecting with the idea that it was his kid. But certainly when when I sent this letter to them now finding him, yeah, it was a complete shock. But I think once they got over the shock, you know, these are very devoutly Christian people. And they, I got to say, they put their, their money where their mouth is, you know, they, they, they're like, no, this is, this is, we're going to, this is your son. You know, we're going to, we're, this is real. We're going to, we're going to walk this walk. So that they did embrace me and have embraced me and reach out to me all the time by text. And I, I've gone to visit them now once and met them in person. I stayed at their house for five days. I, you know, I met my half brother and half sister and spent time with them. And 
and met nieces and nep- you know nephews. I mean, it, it's been all happening, you know, within the last very this year during the pandemic of all things. Wow. So, I yeah. like that you have that acceptance with him because it's hard. How'd you feel about that with your birth mother? Were you sad about it or did it affect you? I think, yeah, it did affect me. I think, Sarah, I know in your story, you know, there was that the subsequent abandonment, right? You know, by your uh, adoptive mom, you know, and I really related to that, that we have, oftentimes we have these sort of series of, of abandonments in our life that kind of like, you know, they just feel like they keep coming a little yes. bit. Wow. And and so I felt, yeah, with her, like, oof, wow, relinquished once and then kind of unclaimed a second yeah. time, right? And I did mm-hmm. feel that. And it was, I was angry and upset and hurt in some way. With him, yeah, he's been very loving, you know, very emotional. I love you, you know. <laughs> I mean, really sweet. He even, we had this conversation in the garage of their house of all places, you know, and like with, you know, just a garage refrigerator and everything in a garage <laughs> sort of around, like what, what a place, but he, there he told me like the story of literally how I was consummate, you know, how I was conceived and then really said, you know, he, how badly he felt about not being there and not, you know, and, and, and this happening without him really knowing. And, you know, he just felt like, he was really so, yeah, you know, so generous in his feeling like, oh, if we can do anything for you and all of that. And I was like, well, I'm, you know, I, I don't need anything. I, I just want to be here and sort of understand you and learn. But what a moment to be standing there with my biological father and tell him telling me how I was conceived and then telling in the garage. me it, in a garage, you know, it was sort of like a dude moment, you know, yeah. <laughs> okay, dad, how was I was, how was it? How did it all go down? You know, Paul Rudd will play you in the movie. <laughs> right, Paul Rudd. Good casting. Right. But, uh, did your partner go with you? Were you alone in this journey? Or I was alone. T- yeah, I was alone in, in this journey, but my partner, bless his heart, he was on the phone with me every night. You know, yeah. like, what's going on? How is this going? Like, what's happening? Because <laughs> I, I was like, yeah, I'm not downloading with them. I'm just living this with them. And, you know, and I think it was the same for them. And they were very, as I said, they were they were introducing me to their church friends. You know, Aww. I mean, this was like, okay. Really? Embracing yeah, just, you. Yeah, absolutely. There was no secret. This is, this is, he's here and this is how it happened. And it was. Were they still in, in West Virginia? No, they live in Ohio now. And uh, yeah, and so they're retired and, you know, they have a beautiful life and just very warm and wanting to include me. And, you know, I mean, we look alike, you know, I look like my biological father. And that was one way I found him was by going back to the yearbook in 1960 from the college where they attended (laughs) and looking for him there now that I had a surname that I got through ancestry and they're staring back at me in the yearbook in 1960 was this man that looked exactly like me with the right (laughs) surname you know and so that must have freaked out your biological mom oh well I'm sure she when you met her she was like yeah I bet yeah we really do look a lot alike and and then my son you know, looks just like him too. So it's like, and there was one recent FaceTime I did with them, with my biological father and his wife in the room. I was in the room on this side with my son and on their side was my biological father and their grandson, my nephew, who's 19, my son's 24. And we all look alike. And Uh and she, she's, you know, not part of this DNA channel, but she's married into this DNA channel. And she is just like, what is going on here? The eyebrows, the eyes, the height, the teeth. What is, she's just like, this is too much. You know, there's all these men and they all look alike. And and half of them, I don't even know. I haven't met yet. You know, it was just for her. I think she was, she was blown away, you know? yeah. Yeah. It was very, it was kind of funny, but yeah, they're leaning, you know, they're leaning in. They're not leaning back. And same with my half brother and half sister, you know, they're leaning. I, I just got a text this morning for pictures of his kids catching a bass and firing a, 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 you know, a handgun for the first time. 
right? It's like, okay. <laughs> Ohio, yeah. <laughs> right? So, yeah. What about, what about your birth mother's <laughs> children, your half-siblings there? Has that been any, are they open to talking? And, um, well, uh, actually, one, one of them has been, and we've been in touch, and they are, and she's been, you know, very, you know, leaned forward and leaned in, and we've had some conversations which have helped me I think understand our mother much better, you know, kind of, I think she had a very, very tough life growing up. I think, I don't know if there was abuse there. I don't know. I don't know what, you know, what was, what's in that whole history, but we both sort of sensed that there was something going on that some deep trauma that, that really she was kind of caring and caring and she carried it into to my birth, she carried it beyond my birth. I'm sure my my birth and relinquishment just added the layers mm. to that to that existing trauma. Yeah, I mean, I've been in touch. It's this is all happening kind of simultaneously, so it's it's a lot. I can only absorb so much. So much, yeah, right? So much. Right. It's you know, even though it's I've you know I've lived 60 years, and in, in, in some ways, you know, it's I have. A sort of better skills to sort of process than I would have 30 years ago. I, it's still, it's still emotionally, I think yeah. activating very young parts of my psyche. Mm-hmm. And so, so I'm just sort of taking it one step at a time. And, and certainly she's been and willing to, to embrace that sort of step-by-step process. And she's not, you know, she's giving me some space. Yeah. They, her older sister. So my older half sister has not indicated an interest in really connecting. You know, I understand that too. It's okay. You know, <laughs> I, I get it. There's just, there's so much hearing both of your stories as Louise in particular, your story of, of how, you know, you finally got to the point of revealing to your parents, you yeah. know, your, um, what was going on with your biological family. It's complex, right? Yes. It, it's very complex. It's complex for, for everybody in the It's still complex. Yeah. <laughs> Doing this I podcast mean, is complex for Sarah yeah. and I. We're like, here we are putting everything out there that yeah. hasn't been out there. And that's a strange feeling too. Yeah. Yeah. And the story of your dad, you know, and the impact on him of hearing what was yeah. going on. And just, yeah, it's for all of us, I think, it activates a lot of a lot of feeling and 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 I think pain to some you know for sure and trauma. But and you but sort also, of nailed it when you said you it's like we're kids again. Yeah, like I feel like it's bringing up just doing this podcast. Sarah and I have the experience where we talk about it afterwards. That gosh, we haven't thought about that in so long. Or like I'll read something or hear something from you and other yeah. guests and think, oh, and you remember and and you feel young again, almost vulnerable or something. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And trying to piece together ourselves, you know, in this process of, because I talked about sort of the difference in just the West Virginia roots and that sort of faith-based community that, that all of that part of me came from with my biological father when he was nine years old, baking pies with his aunt and his mother and going to prisons and reading the gospel to people who were in prison. I said, you were doing that at nine. He goes, Oh yeah, yeah. We would go. And I would read the gospel to the inmates. And I'm like, you're nine years old. I'm like, no, no, no. I, w- I was on this, some set of Kung Fu or something <laughs> in, in Hollywood. I don't know. But you, were, you were lighting Lucille Ball's cigarettes. Exactly. Right. There, I want to do that. You know, I, I didn't want to leave this off the table because I think it's important for particularly queer folks who might be listening to this podcast because I am an openly gay man and I embrace that. And it's been a journey in that respect too. But, you know, and I grew up in a family where I had, a, I even had gay male adult role models. Like, I don't know if you remember the series, I Dream of Jeannie. Oh, yeah. But, oh, yeah, course, but, yeah. The, but Dr. Bellows, who played the psychiatrist, oh, who was, yeah, Dr. Who was always kind of, he knew that there was a genie, but he couldn't prove it. Right. Well, he was a he was a gay man who was in a, a a committed relationship with another man. He was like an uncle to me. So was his partner. They were in our home growing up, you know. So I had sort of this modeling going on in, in this environment. I, you know, based on my experience in meeting my biological family, that would not have been there probably in Western right. Virginia, right. In claiming my queerness, you know, that's been a struggle, even even in just this culture. I mean, my parents certainly 
would not have had a problem with it. But growing up in in this society that we're in that doesn't necessarily or hasn't necessarily embraced queerness, I've had to sort of grapple with that. And that's sort of finding that part of me, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and embracing and claiming that part of me is so much a part of, I think, the, the work we do as adoptees. It's like putting the puzzle together, right? Yeah. And hopefully we have resources. Hopefully we have people that, that will also claim us and help us claim ourselves, right? But for anybody out there, particularly queer folks, I feel you, you know, if, if your experience in being an adoptee and also a queer adoptee puts you in circumstances where that lack of claiming of, of that part of you was part of the dynamic. I feel that with you. And I just celebrate this kind of opportunity and these types of podcasts that you're doing where we can tell these stories yes. to each other so that we can all feel like we're not alone. You we're know? not alone. And there's people that look like all of us in this. Yes. Everybody yeah. can fit into this and be part of a community. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, yeah, that's a good message. Actually, there's help and resources for people. It's lonely. Some of this it's isolating. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Thank you for everything. And thank you for being so vulnerable and open and honest and telling your story and sharing it with us and our listeners. And Oh my gosh. Really really appreciate it. It's great. What a great story. And, it's a great story. Oh, and we're excited to be your friend. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Also, I really want to see a picture of both your your birth father and your son. Oh, yeah. Resemblance. I will, I'll text you that. That'd be great. Yeah, I'd love to see that. Me too. My, birth, my son looks just, I mean, my birth father died like in the 80s, I found out. But uh, he had PTSD. But my son and he look exactly alike. it's like the same person yeah. it's very strange and i look exactly like my birth mother so me too i look just like oh my, my birth God. mother yeah and sarah your story of with your son and that bond and the closeness and yeah the depth of feeling you experienced when he was born and that connection and i mean just so 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 special to hear that and to remember that as well because I was in the you know I was in the you know in the birthing room when my kids came out as well and you know having it, it's a very different experience for a mother I mean I know that but there is certainly that wonder of looking and sort of seeing for yeah. the first time some a, a biological being, relative a yeah. being a being that is kind of is connected in that way and you can and you just you know it's you can't you can't overlook it. It's right there yeah. staring back at you and very special. Yeah. Well, this has well, been really This has wonderful. been amazing. Yeah, I loved it. Really we, great. We loved it. Thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. I can't, I can't wait for David. people to hear this. Oh, yeah. my pleasure. Well, be well. Yeah. Thank you. You, you too. too. Right. Okay, Cheers. bye-bye. Right, ciao. Bye. Bye. David was fantastic. First of all, he's a great storyteller, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. just coming from that background. And yet, and, and again, we find, I really related to what he said about being alone and wanting someone to come kind of rescue you or whatever. That, comfort that, you. That was beautiful what he you. said. Yeah, like someone in the room to comfort you. And mm-hmm. that was a really neat way to say it. It's like, I haven't heard it that way before. And it was just no, beautiful. and that's how I... I felt too. And I'm so glad that he's having this experience now. Me too. And with the, with the hard things with his biological mom and then the, the dad's family being so open and, and loving. And now that he gets to talk to his biological mother's daughter Daughter. and having empathy for what his biological mother went through is really such, it's so profoundly kind it is. You I and I have been talking a lot about this with the birth mother. It's not, they're not all open because it's not all easy. What they have to go through and compartmentalize and the shame, again, the shame, the shame. It's like, we can't really fathom that because we haven't experienced that. And so I think he was, how he said he pushed and then he was more empathetic later. It's yeah. Like you kind of do go into a childhood state of me, 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 What you know, you can't help it. Yeah, it's all about my stuff. I mean, yeah. which well, we'll get we'll get into a chapter discussion later. But anyway, that was, <laughs> he was that wonderful. Was, 
He was. Another great episode. (laughs) We say that every time. That should just be our closing tagline. Another great episode. (laughs) Wonderful guest. Okay. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening today. And remember, if you'd like to share your stories or suggest any guests for our show, you can find us on all the socials at the Making of Me podcast. And again, we have a Patreon page so that we can continue to bring these great adoption stories to you. So if you want to find that and donate or contribute in any way, find us at patreon.com searching adoption colon the making of me. Bye. See you next time.